Hello everyone and welcome to episode 8 of Hints for Healing, a podcast where we discuss multidisciplinary work that contributes to the healing of children and young people with refugee experience. I want to acknowledge that today I'm recording on the land of the Gurungai people and I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land, to their ancestors, their elders, past, present and emerging, and I also acknowledge the injustice that they've experienced and continue to experience and I recognise their resilience in the face of this. I'd like to extend a special welcome to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in today. I'm Nicole Lure, a School Liaison Officer on the School Liaison Team at STARTS, which is the New South Wales-based service for the treatment and rehabilitation of torture and trauma survivors. As you'll hear, I've recently had the pleasure of speaking with teacher, psychologist and writer Jemima Shafiongu. We spoke about what motivated her to write her picture book manuscripts, and Jemima shared her insights on how texts with refugee themes can be used in the classroom in a way that respects the psychological safety of all students. She also shared her tips on how to support students who express their wish to share aspects of their refugee experience with the broader school community. I found that Jemima tackled these topics with such a wealth of compassion and experience and sensitivity, and so I feel very hopeful that you'll find our discussion helpful to your work with school students. My guest today is teacher, registered psychologist and writer Jemima Shafi Ongu. Jemima was born to young migrant parents from Lebanon and grew up in Sydney's inner west. She trained as a school counsellor in 2009 and has worked extensively in southwest Sydney, both in direct service and in a capacity building role to support colleagues in education to better meet the needs of students with refugee experiences. In 2017, Jemima and her family spent a gap year travelling and volunteering with people seeking asylum in Izmir in Turkey. In addition to her work as a registered psychologist, Jemima's recently begun to write children's picture books with the vision to create social change by replacing fear with understanding. She is passionate about bringing greater representation to the mental health needs and diversity in children's literature. Welcome, Jemima. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So what I'd just love to hear about first is how you ended up working with people with refugee experience. That's what led you to want to do this work. I guess it was a combination of factors, including the work that I fell into after school and then becoming a mother within the political um, Australian climate at the time, which was um, quite hostile around the time of the Tampa crisis. And then the work that I had trained in um, after becoming a parent. So the work straight after school was with marginalised young people. And I guess growing up feeling um, quite misunderstood and a little marginalised myself, probably because um, I had parents who were migrants who, even though they weren't refugees, I think felt a bit displaced from their home countries and conflicted about their changing identities. Mm -hmm. So I guess that attracted me to supporting marginalised young people shortly after leaving school. And a lot of that work was through the Australian Arabic Welfare Council, probably on like 
nearly 30 years ago now. It's it's called the Arab Council, I think, where um, that's where I first encountered starts. And I did some extensive training with them at the time. Um, and I guess that's when it really, the, the, the seed really got planted um, in my mind um, of curiosity and compassion towards communities with refugee experiences. And I, I guess then becoming a parent in 2000 to our first daughter, I, I guess it just makes you highly attuned to human rights issues. And I began to realize the significance of circumstance and change uh, and chance, like uh, of where and to whom I, a child is born. And I just became really grateful for the chances that I have and, and just felt a real sense of responsibility to do something with that. And, and I guess my partner at the time was, is also, um, and still with me actually, um, we're both very passionate about human rights issues and um, we share these values together. And I guess um, it's something that we've, we both care very much about. And then after becoming um, a parent or very close, actually, I did my, my, um, MTeach just before I gave birth to our first daughter. Um, I um, worked a lot in southwest Sydney mm. and I guess even though um, I was doing like a job that I really enjoyed with young people I really cared about, I felt I could only go so far in being able to support them given that I had the context and the experiences um, from several years prior to that. So I retrained in school counselling and ended up working in southwest Sydney for like over 10 years uh, in schools where there were large populations of um, communities with refugee experiences. And I think that's kind of how I, I fell into the work, I guess. And I'm really, really grateful to, to have and yeah. feel privileged to be part of that space. So when you were a teacher, did you have students with refugee experience then as well? I did. And I guess because of my teaching, I was always focused at the time around um, trying to get their academic needs met. And while, you know, if there were any issues I could refer for their learning needs, I could see that there were kind of other well-being needs that just weren't being um, addressed. And this is now like 22 or 23 years ago. So at the time, or maybe, maybe a little bit less, um, 20 years ago. Um, at the time, I didn't, there wasn't really the kind of um, support for students with refugee experiences in schools that we really have today. And um, the, the landscape has changed quite a bit. And um, yeah, I just, I would have liked to um, maybe get a lot more training and be able to support them all, but I, I just didn't. Uh, and is, is that what contributed to you retraining and, and working as a school counsellor and then in that capacity building role? Definitely, definitely. And it wasn't just students with refugee experiences. It was other students where I could see that there were um, things around their well-being and their um, family dynamics that were really contributing to adding extra pressure and learning demands on them and they just weren't getting their kind of um, fundamental well-being needs met and that was impacting on their learning and I just feel at the time I didn't get that kind of um, I, I didn't get the experience to really um, 
help support those more global issues um, uh, than I could as a teacher. So as a teacher, I just felt really um, limited, I guess, in my ability to, to support all of their needs. I can see now with the training that's going on for teachers now and the greater awareness we have with making sure that um, emotional and social needs are, um, are met, there's a lot more awareness. But at the time, I just feel like I didn't have um, that level of awareness. Sure, yeah. But now all these years later, I'm conscious that you've got this, you've got experience firsthand um, of your experiences as, as a child of migrants um, in Sydney and raising your own children and being conscious of their well-being needs. And as a teacher and then um, a school counsellor and then in a, in a training and capacity building role on top of that, and then I was thrilled to hear that you've stepped into this world of, of writing picture books um, with an emphasis on, on mental health and well-being needs of, of not only children, but um, I'd love to hear about what you're working on at the moment. Yeah, oh, thanks. So I, I'm really excited about the picture books that I've um, been working on. So one has been a project that's been in my head for like 10 years, <laughs> but I'm really grateful to... Um, say that it's currently being illustrated by a really prolific Aussie illustrator whose work I absolutely love, Craig Smith. And um, thank you. He's pretty cool. Um, and uh, the book actually is called Aslan and Big Bad Benny. And it's looking at using accept multiple acceptance and commitment therapy principles um, in a narrative arc. So really telling a story and not um, being didactic in introducing acceptance and commitment therapy principles uh, throughout the story. And I guess that's where my deepest passion lies, where I can bring together my um, love of picture books and narrative and storytelling with my insight into mental health and well-being and kind of dovetail the two. And this book is really special to me because the protagonist is a little Turkish boy and I think there's such little representation of diverse characters and I think post the Black Lives Matters um, re revival last year or reawakening or reawareness it's it's been something that's an mm -hmm. important issue for such a long time um, the um, there's been a, a large awareness of the limited um, representation of diverse characters and diverse um yeah just diverse characters mm. in our in our yeah. stories and I think the swing of the pendulum um has sometimes um centered characters where they're being told they're, they're being celebrated for their difference but what I what I guess um I'm trying to do is um not reinforce difference is just to say that He's a character who um, is struggling with anxiety. This is what he does to manage his anxiety and the support that he gets to, to be able to um, learn how to better manage his fears and anxieties. Mm. And he just happens to be from a Turkish background. I do not want to centre his ethnicity. It should just be a natural part of the story that he just happens to have mm. a diverse ethnic background. Can you tell me a bit more about that, why you take care not to reinforce difference? I think um, what happens is I think 
we're at risk of reinforcing um, otherness mm -hmm. and just reinforcing othering um, and reinforcing the centering of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, um, something we've got to be really mindful of. Um, so while we say it's cool to be different, we're really um, at risk of reinforcing the message that different from what the norm and the norm is what it's whiteness so I think it's really important to make sure that we um, are very aware of of not reinforcing that that narrative yeah so in addition to um, wanting to represent diversity in this way um, is there anything else that uh, really motivated you to go I've got to start putting pen to paper I've got to start writing for children got to start writing for these audiences is there anything yeah mm -hmm. yeah definitely I guess I've had unwritten story um yeah unwritten stories in my head for such a long time and I just mm -hmm. never had the confidence um to actually put them out on paper and um I think it probably the stuff around mm -hmm. like the Tampa crisis and I remember thinking at the time how are we not seeing picture books that um talk about these issues why is this something that's being experienced by so many children around the world, yet so many of us know very little about it? And um, I read a book in, my, in our daughter's um, early childhood called City's Secrets by Naomi Shahab Nye. And um, it's illustrated beautifully by Nancy Carpenter. And in that story... Um, the protagonist is a little girl who's um, going from what seems to be America, North America, to um, Palestine and visiting her her grandmother. And, and I think that was the biggest inspiration for me to spark my interest into starting to make seen um, those who are just not seen. Mm. So... Uh, there's so many stories of people that are just not told and their stories not being told just further marginalises them, I guess. And so my, my second manuscript, which is actually being considered by Alan and Unwin at the moment, um, is uh, called A Lemon for Sophia. And it's a story about a woman who uh, lives with dementia and great intersectionality um, including ethnic, um, uh, I guess, ethnic intersectionality and mm. being a woman and being elderly and, a whole, you know, probably struggling with language as well as dementia mm. and, um, and how this little girl and her family help um, the old lady find her way back home and by mm. virtue of doing so, help to start conversations um, about some really difficult things that um, exist in our society like um, dementia or mm. homelessness or, yeah, intersectionality. Yeah, I have had the pleasure of reading that manuscript and it was really, really touching and sensitively done. So I hope to see that on the bookshelf soon. It's beautiful. Oh, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're writing um, with both of these books, um, who do you imagine reading them? Does that come into play while you're writing? Yes, it does. And it varies. So I guess um, at the moment I'm working on a manuscript which is um, looking at um, the story of the refugee experience when 
uh, on the journey of to the transition country. So, you know, there are lots of stories that talk about, you know, where the protagonist left and where the protagonist ends. And it's from a war-torn place to a safe place. And, you know, the journey in between is the hard bit, I guess, um, as well as sometimes, you know, living with changes. Um, and so this is looking at the transition space. So in that space, I really think my readership would be um, non-refugee um, children um, to start conversations around um, the, the journey, I guess, and what else happens. Um, I think with A Lemon for Sophia, I think I was trying to have it be read by um, or, or seeing my readers as children who um, can relate to the story because they too may have family who um, experiences great intersectionality or they themselves experience it and to sort of validate their um, their presence in our society mm. and to highlight their their voice and I think, you know, um, there's very little authorship in Australia um, of diverse backgrounds for with diverse voice protagonists. Mm. Um, and then I guess for Aslan and Big Bad Benny, it really is um, a story for anyone who's struggling with anxiety, any child in particular who's struggling with anxiety and it just is very incidental that they happen to have mm. an ethnically diverse background. I didn't want that to be a, a kind of message that's that's overt. It just needed to be very subtle and part of the story. Yeah. Oh. And um, so I was thinking about in your experience as, as a counsellor and a teacher, um, you'd be aware that lots of teachers and counsellors turn to picture books um, when they're trying to support a child either to settle into school um, if they're a teacher or using books therapeutically as part of um, counselling sessions. So um, what are your views on how picture books can best be used to, to support children with whatever they might be struggling with? So I guess it depends on the context, if you're going to be using it um, therapeutically in a counselling session or whether you're going to be using it in a classroom. I tended to use them more in a classroom um, just because at the time as a, as a counsellor, all the kind of refugee trauma, um, the students with refugee trauma, we would always refer to specialist services like STARTS mm. because I think it's really important that the counsellors highly skilled and trained in the impact of trauma and um, trauma awareness and I think um, though in that case um, of course after having a very um, safe and secure uh, connection with the counsellor then topics that or, or stories that looked at range of issues that um, explored broad themes that don't directly address trauma like feeling left out or feeling misunderstood or feeling alone or confused or looking at relationships and friendships or change and expectations and disappointments. I think they're all things that you could use picture books in a therapeutic session 
um, to explore. For example, um, Irina Cobalt and Freya Blackwood's My Two Blankets uh, would do that really beautifully. Mm. Um, and then in the classroom, I think, um, you know, it's really important to, to consider uh, the purpose of the story and when what you're trying to do. So, um, you know, really understanding what you're using the picture books for and if you are going to be using them to raise awareness to issues, um, then that needs to be done really, really carefully mm. um, and we can talk about that a little bit if you want to. Yeah, I would, I would like to hear like some of the things that you think teachers should be aware of um, in terms of um, reducing the risk of exacerbating perhaps, you know, feelings of loss and grief that their students might have, um, you know, when they introduce text to a classroom. Yeah, so I think, you know, the first, the, the really most fundamental thing is to know your students. Mm. Um, are your, what are the students' backgrounds in your in your um, class? Um, if you need to find out um, more of their experience because you suspect that they um, are an asylum seeker or uh, may have a refugee background, consult the school records, consult with um, teachers who were involved in enrolment, um, interview parents with um, uh I guess, cultural sensitivity, where you're asking them broad questions like, is there anything important that you'd like the teachers and the staff to know about your child, which might help us to better understand them or to support them, rather than ever asking anything directly about any trauma or risking re-traumatising the family as well. And so I think that's really important. And another um, a way of knowing your student is giving them time to, to settle in and understanding what things help to make them feel safe, what things they don't like, um, what agitates them, what, what they're doing to perhaps they might be pacing the room and that might be something they need to do to be able to regulate themselves. And so just learning about your, your student in the classroom and if you have a student with that experience. Um, and I guess then you'd be looking at the purpose of the text that you're using. So is it testimony? Is it a dedication to something? Are you using it to educate or to create understanding? Are you using it to build compassion or empathy? Mm. Um, which is really interesting because I don't know that, you know, our students with refugee backgrounds are really the ones that we need to be building, um, you know, as teachers, the story of empathy and compassion to the refugee experience, yeah. uh, for example, um, we need to bear in mind their their resilience and that they are the survivors um, of the experience. So we have some of the most, the, the strongest um, students in our classroom. So looking at, mm. you know, whether it's to start conversations about difficult issues, say, for example, if you're using a picture book in high school settings, that can be a really useful thing. Um, and then looking at the book that you choose, is it a window book? And that's actually going to depend on your students. So is it a book that's going to reflect an experience about the students in your classroom? Or is it a mirror book? Oh, sorry, a window book being um telling of, of an experience that's different to the students in your classroom. Mm. So if you have students with non-refugee experiences and you would like them to see out into the world, 
of what it might be like for a child with a refugee experience? Is that what the purpose of the book is or is it a mirror book? Is your class, um, you know, does your class have students with refugee experiences which it may be reflecting back to them? And is this really, um, is this book really needed and why? Really asking those really big questions. Mm. Um, I can give you an example of a teacher um, who I've worked with who did a really wonderful job in kind of setting up a really safe practice for a student mm. when when she's te- or for students when she's teaching oh, um, yep okay yeah. so firstly she's a specialist teacher she's an EALD so she would have a little bit more time to to work with a child directly and what she would do would be to introduce the book that the class is thinking of reading to that child beforehand Mm -hmm. and ask them to go through the pictures slowly and carefully and this is of course after she's had set up really um, a really good safe trusting relationship with this child and then she would um, ask the child to respond to that text by perhaps um, either describing how they feel she has she lays out emotion cards where she can ask them to choose how they feel or asking them to illustrate how they might be feeling and then she'll unpack that slowly with them without asking any direct questions at all especially not about any um, trauma experiences but allowing the child to just respond to the text and then after that, she would ask their permission to use it with the classroom. It, would it be okay if I shared with the other children this story to help them understand what some children around the world experiences? And obviously, if that's something that, and, and give the child the permission to, to not be part of that lesson if they don't want to be, because they've already gone through the book and they've explored that. And then um, explore any concerns that the child might have um, and give them, you know, um, I guess, um, opportunities to, to opt out if they're in the class. What can they do to, that would actually help them feel safe if they don't like where the mm-hmm. lesson is going because it's making them feel unsafe? Mm-hmm. And establish those things beforehand. And then afterwards, she will debrief with the, with the student and ask them how it went, how she felt, um, how they felt the, the, the class went, if they have any questions, do they have any concerns. So really doing it in a really therapeutically sound way. Um, and just by virtue of that, um, putting really safe practices um, Re- reinforcing safety and centering the connection and the trust yeah. um, in that whole practice. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was indeed, um, it, it just struck me how, how gentle and respectful that was yeah. engaging yeah. that way and really giving the student um, an opportunity to give consent to potentially be exposed to something that might um, really rattle them. Um, yeah what I like about it is that she actually goes through it carefully with them first and Mm. because their language skills may still be very limited she's asking them to respond to the pictures and she will have an interpreter for that child um, at those meetings so that child can 
um, respond verbally to those and ask lots of questions. And then she can also explain what's going on in the pictures um, with the support of the interpreter. Hmm. And do you think it was important that this was done in a one-on-one setting or could Definitely. this work? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so- I think I think it's really important um, at a young level especially to have the one-on-one. And I know how um, much resource you know, um, you know, what would a resource demand that is for schools, but this is a school with a really large um, population of, of refugee students. Mm. And so I think it's really important to have um, good teacher training in that area, even if you only have a few students with refugee experiences, because um, you need to be mindful that they are in your classroom and you could be potentially triggering them or re-traumatizing them with a story uh, without intending to do so. Yeah. And I I appreciated you explained um, about mirror and window books and how they might um, be used differently depending on the demographics um, that you've got in the class. And I was thinking, of course, of the situation we come across most is where there's a mixed group with students who do have refugee experience and those that don't. And I'm wondering if you can reflect on how texts, not necessarily books, but also, you know, maybe films or or television series that do have um, a refugee theme within them or a theme of loss and grief or of oppression of some sort. How can those sort of texts be used to build inclusion rather than um, emphasising the difference uh, is, is are there things teachers can do to if they are going to use those texts for whatever reason to do them in the most to present them in the most um, way that's likely to build inclusion? Yeah, I think um, really, um, I guess again, knowing those, knowing your students, knowing what the dynamics of your cohort is Um, you may have a cohort which is really supportive and where the students feel safe and safe to discuss issues with one another you might have a class which is quite volatile where um, difference can um, something like this may exacerbate difference and um, create hostility within the classroom and I mean, it's not to say that, say, for example, if you had a high school class where you can't have those rich discussions, but it's really important to um, ensure those safe practices, talk about making sure you give people a heads up, um, giving people, I guess, in in a classroom like that, you would still be talking to, um, in a mixed classroom, you'd still be talking to the students um, who may be um, impacted by the text and um, ask them what they might need and ask them how they might feel and um, give them options to be able to um, do something alternative to that um, text if Mm. that's possible. That's really important, isn't it? That um, just giving that sense of agency that they've, students have options to choose from and, and their opinion on um, whether they'd be able to handle this and whether they want to try it, um, that they've got some agency and control over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Mm. And I think teachers asking careful questions, never asking about direct experiences and never asking a student to talk about their experience is really, really important. 
Um, Could you elaborate on that a bit, um, why you wouldn't want to ask directly if someone's got lived experience um, of a theme you're exploring in class, why wouldn't you ask that student about that? For sure, for sure. I think if a student volunteers um, to tell their experience, that that's something that you can help support, which I can talk about in a, in a little bit. Mm. But I, I would always um, discourage that for several reasons. I think the first being that um, potentially um, the child could be re-traumatised by telling that experience. Secondly, you don't actually know, um, like the the child themselves may not know how they might respond once it's become a story that is witnessed once it's some, because trauma lives in the body. So once you verbalize it, they may not know what their body's response may be in that situation. So they themselves may not be able to um, feel contained or safe uh, once it's happened. Um, another reason is that what is the purpose? What it, we really need to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of asking a student to talk about their own experience? Because for, I've, you know, done a, quite a little bit of research in this area and from people who promote the concept as being quite good, who've said things like, oh, it's good for um, the child to educate the teacher about the experience. And thanks to hearing these children's horrible stories, I feel much better educated. But is it really a child's um, responsibility, especially at age eight, nine, 10, to actually educate their peers and teachers about human rights violations? Yeah. I actually think that's a really huge um, burden and responsibility to put on the shoulders of young people. Um, and what is it that we're trying to get out of asking them to tell the story? Are we trying to um, feel a deeper sense of connection to them because now we feel empathy towards them? You know, and, and I guess the danger in that is our own ethnocentrism because when we're asking them to share stories, we're actually asking them to share a particular story of pain and brokenness. Mm. And that's a really dangerous thing to do. Mm. Um, because we're at risk of curating young people's stories. We're at risk of reinforcing that this is what makes you worthy and important to us. This is how we want to see you. And also not um, allowing them to tell the story that they want to about themselves. They might be a fabulous soccer player and want to talk to you all about soccer. Mm. And that that's something that, you know, I think we can honour as educators and allow them to talk to us about their experience as a soccer player um so yeah I think you know there's a great risk in expecting young people to tell us their stories now if they themselves volunteer to tell their stories I think that's a little bit different um, but it still has to be treated with great care and um, sensitivity if that happens you would ask um the student um you know what it is that made them feel like they wanted to tell the story um, because maybe there was a slight coercion mm. inadvertent or, or actually overt mm. um, maybe um, they felt responsible because they heard you know a story being read and they felt like they should tell their story so it's really important to check in first and then to give them permission to not have to tell their story mm -hmm. then what you would do is um, 
uh, give them the time and the resources they need to be able to um, to tell their story. Mm. So time to to practice it, and then you would actually vet the story as well to help make sure that they've got um, language that's going to keep them safe, language that's going to keep the students safe, and language that's going to keep their teachers safe, because um, there are some really horrific things, as we know, um, that students with refugee experiences have have witnessed and experienced and sometimes they may not have um, the language not just because of their literacy um, development but also their experience with um, nuance uh, in terms of language use. I'm wondering to what extent you'd recommend teachers involve parents or guardians with um, instances where students are keen to tell a story through verbally writing through art perhaps but that has yeah really really you know stories of, of extreme you know violence deprivation loss yeah yeah that's a really involved? good mm. yeah that's a really really good question I know one of the things that um when I was a counsellor at um some of my schools and I would be talking to the parents the parents wanted to reassure me that they protected their child from seeing anything traumatic. And I think it's such a um, significant burden that we wear as parents to try and protect your children from everything harmful mm. that it could be really confronting to hear that, um, well, actually, this is their experience and they want to share it. Mm. Um, so I think that needs to be done with great care as well. And like the relationship that you need to establish with the child, you need to also establish a safe and trusting relationship with the parent. Um, otherwise, we run the risk of alienating them as well. And, and that means kind of validating um, how they're feeling and what they feel about, about the um, process and exploring any anxieties that they may have. And then talking about how... Um, this might be helpful for the child or young person. And that's why, again, it's really, really important to know what, what is the benefit of this? Why would you, why do we want the young person to tell their story? Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing that's, you know, really important is to be aware that when we talk about um, refugee experiences, it's really a, a a life that we're talking about that has been impacted by human rights violations. Mm. So the refugee experience started way back in a home country where something happened. So it may have been a natural disaster, but it may have been something that politically, you know, our countries may have contributed to. And um, I don't know that that's really a story that we would perhaps be comfortable hearing and yet it's it's also the truth so we need to be careful what is it that we're really trying to hear and how useful is that for the young person and um what is it really um what knowledge is it really imparting and for what and to what end what purpose yeah and as I'm listening to you talk I'm also thinking about the other students in the classroom that might hear these stories whether or not they've been impacted by trauma themselves what do you think teachers need to be mindful of um, when they're thinking about risk of vicarious trauma to 
yeah, to other students in the room that might be exposed to, to stories from their classmates? Yeah, look, that's a really significant um, issue because I, I remember um, being a, a counsellor at a school and for so long we were so focused on the students with refugee experiences themselves and their families that, you know, and kind of mitigating risk for them and, and um, kind of trying to get their needs met that we didn't realise they'll be talking to their peers. Mm. <laughs> that, that, that what you're talking about also happens on the playground where students are not necessarily um, vetting anything. They're just, if they feel very close to someone, they may share something really horrific. And I think that's something that um, schools need to become more mindful of. How do we support um, students to hear tragic um, stories and um, yet um, feel safe in a classroom. And I guess um, giving students a heads up mm. by explaining, you know, by building the field, for example, um, you know, making sure that um, children have plenty of um, knowledge and information beforehand of what's going to be um, explored, what things might come up, um, do they have any concerns, um, making sure that you have got those kind of safe practices in classrooms where if things get a little bit too hard, can they give themselves, you know, a little break to go and get a drink of water and come back and exploring later on after the class, um, having a debrief and talking about anything and, um, and, and, and also containing it if you feel that a student is starting to divulge a personal experience of, I don't know, say something horrific like domestic violence or sexual assault and it starts to kind of unpack in the classroom, really containing that right there and saying, I think this is something that we might be able to talk um, about together on our own a little bit later and, and, and then go through your processes of um, bringing on the school counsellor on board or wherever mm -hmm. the, the conversation was at, um, yeah. what action their school would need to take for that. Thanks, Jemima. That's really helpful. And teachers would have to work really hard to manage that, that fine line of um, protecting um, all the students in their class and also not uh, taking care not to let that student who is divulging feel that they've done anything wrong or that there was anything shameful in what they wanted to divulge um, but that yeah that work can perhaps best be done in, in a more confidential space. Yeah that's right and I mean the other thing we want um, young people to know that difficult feelings are really hard but they're not bad and they're not bad for mm. you mm. so we don't you know I remember um, I, I was kind of pretty strict with vetting a lot of film um, that my daughters were exposed to. They tell me later how it was really unfair because all their friends were watching M movies much earlier than they were. And, mm -hmm. um, but I remember when our daughters watched The Sapphires um, and one of our daughters, I think she was about 12, um, got really emotional and, um, you know, was crying at the scene where there was um, – um, warfare like there was kind of there were guns shooting down at the helicopter and um, she came home and said I feel really I feel really dumb I feel really bad nobody else my age would cry at this and I said no that's actually a really really good thing you you know it's really important not to be sensitized um, 
to to war and gun and guns and killing and fighting I think if mm. you do Be respond sensitized. yeah I, I think it's it's important yeah not to be desensitized that's right sorry um to be sensitized rather to um things that are you know traumatic experiences so I think you know validating children's feelings if they do bring up difficult um emotions and uh, you know allowing children to to express themselves and that it's okay and normal and healthy to cry and be upset if something really horrible has happened or something has upset you is a normal healthy reaction and response and that's very validating isn't it Mm. Jemima it has been fascinating and enlightening to talk to you as it always is (laughs) anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up uh no I just think that it's it's always a pleasure to work with starts I've found starts a very integrous organization um that really um walks the walk and it's it's been absolute pleasure um to work with you and and your colleagues so thank you so much for the time and space to to speak with you today it's my pleasure jemima thank you all right bye 